how does it feel to fly faster than sound? Yeah, I, I coined a stock answer in 1954. It said never replace sex. And, it, it, you know, it, it, that's the end of the question. <laughs> Flying ace and test pilot Chuck Yeager. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. He was a farm boy from Hamlin, West Virginia. Chuck Yeager joined the Army at the outset of World War II, just a couple of years after he graduated from high school, and soon he became a fighter pilot. Two years after the end of the war, in 1947, Chuck Yeager became the first test pilot ever to break the sound barrier. He rose through the ranks to become a general before retiring, but that was hardly the end of his adventures. By the time I met him in 1988, he and longtime companion Bud Anderson had written a book about their experiences hiking and camping in the High Sierras. So here now from 1988, Chuck Yeager and Bud Anderson. You guys, it, 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 it's almost like reading Tom Sawyer. I mean, the, the, the adventures of you two guys. Well, if you go back, we started out together in March 1943 as a fighter pilot, and that's a long time ago when we were relatively young. I was 20 and Andy was 21, and, and we flew combat together. We were test pilots together, and we always work in a little fun at everything we do, and now that we've retired, we are doing a lot of hunting, fishing together, backpacking, and, and still fly a lot together. What do you suppose keeps two guys together? I mean, you guys have been together longer than a lot of people have been alive. Well, we had a lot of things in common going for us. We were both uh, rural kids, and then uh, we developed a love for flying, a love for adventure, and uh, uh, we both like hunting and fishing, and we're different as black and white as people, but uh, <laughs> we have a lot of traits. I, I couldn't help thinking when when you take risks, when you, when you do something that – when you just go for it, you know, as you say, where does – constructive risk-taking and and recklessness begin at what at what point do you begin to begin to say hey this we're is, this probably, is off the deep end. we're probably a little better qualified to make decisions like that because of our our history in life uh, basically as fighter pilots fighting in war you know you have a risk factor and a reward factor and and we can play the fine line and since we've been doing that all of our life uh, people ask us now what why are you why are we going 19 miles today with this heavy backpack? I, because it's a challenge, you know, and it it gives you an incentive to do something. And that's uh, the, we uh, we play it probably a little closer to the edge than an average person would, because that's been our lifestyle uh, all of our adult life. Are you are, are you born that way, or is that or is that something you can well pick you're, up? You're born with. Uh, aggressiveness uh, obviously you have to be aggressive to survive in in a war like we've uh, we fought in and also uh, that trait uh, you develop and re refine it as you get older so I think that was addressed in the book. Uh, I remember mm -hmm. making some comments on uh, Chuck Yeager's uh, recklessness mm -hmm. and uh, I don't think. Chuck what did you phrase it? The, the careful recklessness? Is that the way you phrased right, yeah, it? Yeah, there's, there's some uh, carefully selected words in there. But I don't think Chuck ever took a, a risk that he didn't think he could come out of. There's also a difference, isn't there, between taking a risk for yourself and also taking a risk when there are other men looking to you for guidance. Yeah, definitely, especially if you're leading a combat mission and you you evaluate the situation and you know you don't stick your neck out. It's just like me riding on an airliner. I know that pilot up there likes his neck as well as I like mine. He's going to take care of it. And that's, that's the way you should be. So. And you certainly wouldn't expect him in that situation to take any kind of risks. You'd like right. him to be just buy the book, play it safe, and all right, that. Right, right on. 
general, you described when you were growing up the, the barefoot boy in the bib overalls, uh, trying to imagine the Shangri-La, the, the place that you would discover. Did you ever, in your wildest dreams, imagine that as, a, as an adult at this age that you would have done the things you've done, seen the things you've seen, gone the places you've gone? Did any of that ever occur to you? Well, the answer is no, that's for sure. No, I, you know, that's speculation. And, uh, and like people ask you if you had your life to live over, would you do it again? Well, of course I would, you know, because you're happy with it. And uh, the main thing, though, I think, is that a great deal of luck enters into being at the right place at the right time. You know, I, I could have been born in 1983 instead of 1923. Uh, I've never been exposed to airplanes like the X-1, X-1A, and milestones in flight, uh, and the transition from props to jets to rockets. And also, Andy and I uh, think today about technology, what it's given us. For instance, we used to take a, catch a trout and put a little piece of bacon in it and roll it in the aluminum foil and throw it in the coals and then eat it. Today, man, we pack Teflon skillets. Now, that's technology. <laughs> <laughs> but you haven't gotten to the solar-powered microwaves yet, though. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we do carry a solar-powered bag to heat the water, you know, so we don't have to stand around cold water all the time. <laughs> but you do have to, you have to be very light in what you pack, don't you? Yes, because <clears throat> we operate up to 14,000 feet and you hang a you know 40 45 50 pound pack on a guy's back when you get up to altitude that air is hard to come by and uh, if you're overweight that's the first thing that clobbers you and so when guys go with us for the first time we go through their equipment and say hey you don't need this believe me uh, you know you don't need this that's surplus and you'll appreciate throwing it away more after we get up there now do you take uh tender feet with you uh do you yeah guys not tender feet <laughs> you and uh, that's literally. <laughs> the thing is, it takes us about three days to get into the high Sierras and in the Sequoia National Park. And then you start living off golden trout and enjoying the country. Now, if, if a guy sprains an ankle, gets sick, you've got a big problem on your hands. And, and the fun ends and the job starts getting him out. So, A lot, a lot of it's uh, <clears throat> motivation, wanting to go. And... Uh, we always know whether a guy really liked it or not if he goes the second time. <laughs> <laughs> or if he just files his major medical and says right. no thanks. <laughs> yeah, <that's> right. <laughs> Something along those lines, I guess. We've had people you know, go one time and say, hey, no way, Jose, again. <laughs> but guys like Victor Belenko, who brought the MiG-25 out of Russia, has been up there twice with us. And he's eager to go. Ne- he says, I'm going next year, period. And he's stubborn enough. We know he will. And uh, like Joe Engel and both of our kids have gone with yeah. us a lot. So. Do you find that there are some people, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, fuddy-duddies, who say to you, you guys are too old, you shouldn't be doing that, you should be sitting down having a nice game of poker or something? Yeah, we, we were on a radio station with a call in, the old guy sounded like he's about half dead, so I watched him <laughs> show fabric on a balloon, you know, and we figured 95 at least. He said, I can't fly anymore and I can't get around. I said, how old are you? He said, 65. Man, I about went through the mic at him. I said, what do you mean you can't fly anymore? I said, I'm 65 and I fly, you know, high-performance fighters and and. The thing is, I think, is we talked about aggressiveness. And uh, and that's the one reason that we started uh, backpacking in the high Sierras every July because it, we plan and it makes us stay in good shape the rest of the year so that we don't have to really hump in June to get ready to go. And that adds to our longevity, and that's one of the big reasons. I think the other thing was that about 20 years ago, <clears throat> or when we retired from the military service, we figured we were going to live a little bit longer than we thought we might, and we're starting to worry about taking care of ourselves. 
Well, there's nothing to keep you in shape like uh, like going up in the Sierras, I would imagine. That's, that's right, and also our lifestyle of hunting and fishing, mm-hmm. like Andy and I were in Alaska in July, and we'll be doing a lot of running the hills for quail and uh, deer and elk uh, in the fall, and, and it's just a matter of harvesting and having fun. After this short break, was Chuck Yeager the product of nurture or nature? Now back to my 1988 interview with Chuck Yeager. Do you ever think what your life would have been like if you had stayed in Hamlin, you'd become a laborer, and you'd never left town, you'd never never flown, you'd never gone to the Sierras? The reason I don't think about it, I, I, don't, I hate nightmares. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> no, I, it, you know I, I don't know what would have happened. We were just lucky to be at the right place at the right time and, and get out of high school and enter into the, the Air Force or Army Air Corps then as a maintenance officer, then fly, and then have, have fun. That's one thing Andy has, uh, has helped me a lot, and even in combat and in test work, is we seldom let a day go by without having a little fun doing something. <laughs> You know, just just looking at you, even before even before we started talking out in the lobby, I could tell that you two have fun together. Mm-hmm. You just look like the kind of guys who would have fun together. Yeah, sometimes we have trouble with the police too. <laughs> <laughs> now you do commercials from time to time. Yeah, I do uh, AC Delco commercials. Have been for about seven years plus, and and I was surprised. General Motors came to me and they'd done a lot of research on me and found out my dad never drove anything but Chevrolet trucks and General Motors products. A, I never did. I work on my own vehicles, and because I was trained as a maintenance uh, type by my father, and then in the Air Force, and and uh, when they asked me to do it, I said, "Yeah, I believe in them. I'll do it." And and I, I've uh, had a lot of fun doing them. And so you wouldn't have done a commercial for something you didn't believe in. Well, that's that's one thing. I don't, you know, it's not like some of these guys sell diapers and toothpicks and safety pins. And you, you name it, they'll sell it. Well, I I don't believe in associating my name with anything I don't believe in. And, I wonder. I have. I, I. I want to come back to the question that that I that started to touch on earlier about how, what you're born with. Were you, are you, are you born with that that metal that that says, take the risk, do it, go for it. Well, I think you're born with obviously something that we were lucky to have, and that's excellent eyesight and good uh, hand-eye muscular coordination, uh, and that made us capable of being outstanding pilots. And I think we were the way you're raised has to do with a lot about how aggressive you are, how self-sufficient, and you know, independent. And uh, being rural kids, that's the way we were raised, and uh, that carried right on into our adult lives. Hmm. Dan Quayle has been criticized a lot for having done whatever he did or may not have done to try to get out of service in Vietnam. First of all, is there anything wrong with what he did? Well, the, what I saw come out of this whole thing was uh, seemed to me n- not people trying, but the end result was that they degraded the National Guard. And uh, I'll tell you, that really makes me mad. Dan Quayle could have gone to Canada, and uh, he didn't. He elected to serve in the National Guard. And I'll tell you one thing, like during the Pueblo flap in Korea in the 68, I was commander of an F-4 wing. I took my wing over there for six months. I was augmented by a National Guard squadron. I tell you, those guys were better than my regular Air Force troops, and that's that's the case of today. It's a nucleus, and I I really got angry when the press began to dig, just because uh, degrading the National Guard. That is an honor to serve your country in the National Guard, and Dan, what Dan Quayle did, as far as I'm concerned, was 100 percent right. They almost make it sound like he was 
becoming a librarian. Well, you, you know, you get nitpicking, uh, you get the press distorting things a little bit, unfortunately, but then they straighten them out eventually. It's lucky I'm not a member of the press. <laughs> well, and there's, there's those kind of jobs on active duty, too. I mean, mm. there's, there's jobs to be done, and uh, the National Guard service is honorable duty. What do you like best about this man? Oh, hanging around him is never dull. <laughs> there's, there's always some kind of excitement uh, uh, generated when you follow Jaeger around. The <laughs> same with Andy. I used to follow him around in combat and just to take his rejects in, in, in enemy <laughs> fighters, you know. He, he was pretty good. <laughs> Have you ever sat down with one of those computer-simulated uh, flight programs? Oh, wait, you've, got, you've got one in the yeah, store, yeah, don't sure. you? Sure, Electronic Arts. Of course. And I helped program it and work it up and and uh yes see what you got to realize we've been working in simulators for many many years as pilots uh, and also air combat simulators and the like and we've been you know 24 on 24 aircraft and domes and enemy aircraft and yes we both worked with them a great deal and when electronic arts asked me to put out this jaeger's advanced flight simulator yeah i said we can program it and make the guy work hard and it's very realistic, and uh, we're working on a uh, air combat trainer right now where you shoot guys down. Of course, I program it to where I don't ever lose. <laughs> it's, it's fun to work with that sort of thing. I tell you, it's a heck of a lot better than a kid, you know, in the corner drugstore playing a pinball ball machine because it gives him a challenge and makes him aggressive and, and understand uh, new technology. Yeah, I felt very foolish as soon as I asked that question because I remembered I'd just seen it in the store the other day. As soon as I get a color monitor, I'm going to buy yeah, it. we put about eight, <laughs> eight word voiceovers in this thing, you know, in words. When a guy screws up and hits the ground or hits, runs into a building, he said, man, you dug a hole all the way to China. You straighten <laughs> up. <laughs> Is there one question that you are asked everywhere you go by everyone that you meet that you wish you could answer just one more time and never have to hear it again? No, nah, I, you know, I, I really don't pay an awful lot of attention to that. It's, there's always some guy says, is there anything that you can talk about you've never talked about, any, any exclusive, you know, that I can get a headline out of? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. <laughs> he gets that question all the time. How did, how did it feel to break the sound barrier? <laughs> yeah, how does it feel to fly faster than sound? Yeah, I, I coined a stock answer in 1954 so it never replaced sex, and it that, you know, <laughs> that's the end of the question. <laughs> no, it, one thing, it, in order to cope with people, you know, asking you a lot of questions and things like that, you, you always wait for them to make a mistake, you know, so you can have a little fun with them. And the funny one is when some guy walks up and looks at you real seriously, are you who I think you are? And you say, how would I know who you think I am? You know? <laughs> and that, then that starts a good conversation and you, and you get off on a good foot with you. But it's fun. The thing is, uh, like a lot of people would say, why did you come out with a book like Press On? And really, what Bantam noticed in doing my autobiography, that we had a tremendous amount of fun that didn't go into the autobiography and the hilarious stories and things like that. So we put it all together, and they found out that, hey, your lifestyle is something that lends to longevity, and uh, that's the emphasis today. So that's the reason we came out with Press On. Chuck Yeager died last December. He was 97 years old. And you can find easy Amazon links to Chuck Yeager's books at our website, HeardEverything.com. Are you new to Now I've Heard Everything? Well, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And you can find all of our past episodes at our website, HeardEverything.com. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, she grew up in one of America's best-known musical families, but also one of its most troubled 
my 1992 interview with Latoya Jackson. The world saw this picture of this perfect image of this family, and they want to continue to see this, but that never exists in our life, never. Even before they became the Jackson Five, it was just awful. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson.